This week's TribCast is sponsored by Arnold Ventures is a philanthropy dedicated to tackling the most pressing problems in the United States. Maximize opportunity, minimize injustice. Visit arnoldventures.org for more. And Curative. Curative is upending traditional employer-based healthcare coverage by launching a no-copay, no-deductible health insurance plan starting in Austin. Learn more at curative.com slash health plan. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for September 16th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. This week we had some interesting news come about, not particularly surprising news, but interesting nonetheless, in which the new population estimates from the U.S. Census Bureau estimated that you know, at long last that the Hispanic population in Texas is now the biggest demographic group in the state, surpassing the white population in the state. This was kind of the latest data point and kind of a long running political conversation about the demographic changes in the state. And it prompted, you know, as we have often seen, uh, some some interesting takes and some pretty bad takes too. And here to help us kind of sift through some of those conversations and what this means for the state are our demographics reporter, Alexa Ura. Hello, Alexa. Hello, happy Hispanic Heritage Month, appropriately. <laughs> Oh, yes, yes. It's almost <laughs> as if the Census Bureau planned announcement, right? And, and um, our politics reporter, James Bettergon. Hey, James. Hello. And I will I will now only be referred to as a member of, of the majority. So uh... <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's, I mean, that would be statistically inaccurate, James. <laughs> okay. You know what? But we, Here we go. We... Here we go. <laughs> We're going to start already. We've called people of color minorities for far longer than they were actually in the minority. So at this point, who cares about throws a, throws a bone, throws a fair bone. Enough, fair <laughs> enough. All right. So here we go. We've already started with some good takes and some bad takes on the demographics numbers. Uh, Alexa, I want you to kick us off here first by just telling us what these census numbers say and kind of how how the how they're you know compiled here. Sure. Uh, so we have been, like many people, tracking these sort of par- what were for a long time parallel lines between the Hispanic population growth and the white population growth, uh, particularly because over the last few decades, the Hispanic population has really been growing m- at a much faster pace than the white population. And it was inevitable that these parallel lines were eventually going to cross. Um, and according to these new figures from the Census Bureau's American Community Survey, that may have already happened at some point in, in 2021. The latest figures show that Hispanic Texans made up 40.2% of the state's population and that non-Hispanic white Texans made up 39.4%. Um, it's important to point out that these are not the official population estimates. The Census Bureau uses a different set of estimates to sort of track what they consider official in between the decennial censuses, you know, in this case, after the 2020, the 2020 census. But, you know, I think that th- this is the first time we've seen one of these estimate sets really reflect what was really inevitable and kind of foreseeable. 
Um, and I think obviously for, for a lot of folks, it's, it's a threshold that they were waiting to happen. It's just barely happened based on these estimates, right? It's, we're talking about uh, decimal points here. Um, but you know the the lines are just going to continue moving in the in the direction they're moving because the white population growth has been so sluggish for so long, while the Hispanic population growth just just continues to uh, to go up and up. Right, right. I mean, I'm I'm looking at this graphic that ran with our story, and you know, back in 2012, the white population 44 percent, the Hispanic population 38 percent. That Hispanic population is now. 40% estimated to be 40% of the population. So a 2% climb, but even maybe even more significantly is the share of, of, of white people declining even faster that from 44% to 39%. Of course, you know, we should all just pause and recognize, right, that while the, um, uh, the, the Hispanic population has become the largest demographic group that has not been reflected in the halls of power um, or, you know, a lot of other areas in the state. Of course, we the legislature is still uh, much, much more wider than more white than the, the general population. But also if you look at, um, you know, universities, um, you know, newsrooms in Texas, you know, like all different kinds of places where, you know, that um, demographic change has not been fully reflected. Alexa, I mean, some of that, of course, I think is due to the fact that I believe the Hispanic population also trends younger as well. But I mean, it's also just a time to pause and note that, you know, in terms of representation in the state, there's a lot of ground to to be made up here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to just look at these figures and, and think in terms of data and hard numbers, right? But in reality, what these numbers are reflecting are the fact that not only does our present look very different than the sort of way in which we govern, but our future does, right? When you think about these trends and this growth among the Hispanic population, Hispanics are close to being a majority among Texas children. Mm -hmm. This is our next generation of the workforce. And by many, many standards, they are falling behind, right? They, they are underperforming in schools. They are graduating less prepared for college. As adults, they are less likely to have the sort of degrees and certificates needed, not only to obtain uh, jobs, but but kind of move up and sort of that social mobility, right? And and obviously those sort of things, the the consolidation of social standards, social mobility is often what leads to political control, right? When people when people are able to sort of move upward when they're not just spending their days worried about how to put food on their tables and feed their children, that also translates into more political activism and more involvement in their communities. And, you know, it it all sort of works its way up to the Capitol um, here in Austin. And so I think that these gains are not only representation of, or rather these lack of gains are not only a representation of what Hispanics are lacking today, but it's also a warning about what may be lacking in the future if we don't begin to think about these disparities and, and how to address them. Sure, yeah, the, um, you know, uh, Hispanic population in Texas public schools is a majority right now. It, it's, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the numbers right now, right around 53%, almost twice 
as much as big as the white population, which rep represents uh, under 27% of the population here. So um, you uh, definitely see um, that disparity. You know, I was actually interested, um, I think we'll talk about a little bit about the UT um, poll that came out this week um, um, a, a little bit later, but one thing that really struck me looking at that poll was the difference in um, kind of demographics um, in terms of views of the quality of public schools, for instance, and uh, white people and, and conservatives and Republicans uh, were far more likely to say that the Texas's public schools were strong, for instance, than the Hispanic population um, or Democrats, which, you know, in some ways I found surprising because, you know, where you were hearing the most kind of political outcry about um, the state of our public schools um is in the like conservative circles but of course in the like most important things that we are should be thinking about for our schools in terms of like the quality of the education um, we continue to see kind of you know big inequalities in terms of like the resources and, and what's being offered um you know depending on race and geography and, and economic income and and all those things yeah i mean i i think you really have to when you think about the decisions made, being made by those in power, particularly the legislature, you have a group of predominantly white men making decisions for funding, for curriculums, for the way racism and history can be taught in Texas classrooms that are predominantly filled by Hispanic children. Um, and and the, the mismatch there for some folks you know, it, it's it's a mismatch that people are maybe experiencing differently on the ground than than in the sort of conversations that are often carried out in, in the sort of halls of power. Um, mm -hmm. Again, halls of power that are still predominantly filled by white men, white Republican men in, in particular. Right, right. James, I mean, this has been something, these demographic changes in the state have been something that have been talked about by politicos for a very long time and and as possibly a sign of you know could texas be turning blue or or purple in some ways and and usually the first kind of statistic that people point to when they raise that possibility is the changing demographics but now here we are in a state that is you know more hispanic than it is white um, but we are also a few months out of an election where, you know, the uh, Republican Party, um, you know, with with white men kind of up and down the ticket are are favored to, you know, expected likely to emerge victorious again. Are the were these expectations unrealistic? Is it a situation where politics is lagging culture? I mean, what do you think is happening here? Um, yeah, I mean, I do think that the expectations were unrealistic in terms of, you know, demographics is not destiny. I mean, just because someone is of a particular race or ethnicity or background doesn't mean that they're guaranteed going to vote for you. And so I do think that particularly uh, the minority party here, uh, the Democratic Party, had sort of tended to um, just oftentimes take the Latino vote for granted um, and say, you know, well, Republicans are just treat Latinos so bad that, you know, we're, we're, we're the best choice. Um, and Republicans, I think to their credit, uh, with folks like uh, George W. Bush, with folks like Governor Abbott, 
And now with the slate of um, young uh, Latino Republicans running, they have made uh, they have made uh, you know overtures to conservative uh, Latinos, conservative Hispanics, uh, particularly in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, and so I think it's 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 a little bit of that in terms of like the messaging is also important. Um, but I think another thing that has that like can't be like stated enough is the influence of gerrymandering and redistricting another one of Alexa's favorite topics on perpetuating like the um, the influence of, you know, white uh, men in power. Um, and more importantly than just like white men in power, because obviously Latinos and African-Americans and Asian-Americans can vote and can have the candidate of their choice be a white person. But more importantly than who is in charge is like who is disenfranchised by like the way we set up redistricting. And it has been black and specifically Latino voters um, or Hispanic voters, I'm sorry. Uh, who are uh, disenfranchised and are not able to pick the candidates of their choice. So I think that can't be overstated when we talk about like the impact of like these funding choices that Alexa is talking about. Um, and that sort of sort of perpetuates the cycle um, that we kind of are talking about, about, you know, whether Hispanics and Latinos can get into these, like, can have that social mobility that in that, that we all would, would want to happen. Um, but I think the political discussion around like, the Hispanic majority is now very interesting because I think there are sort of shifts in how Hispanics are uh, voting or how they're being politically aligned. And that's partly due to messaging. And I know we're going to talk about that in the another half of the show. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think they were overstated because you still got to fight for those votes. I mean, it's not like people are just going to vote for you because they're, you know, you're, you're born Hispanic and you're going to vote for a certain party, you know. Yeah, I think there are like the the forces around this demographic change are are really important to acknowledge sort of individually, but also in how they interact with each other. Right. You know, James mentioned political gerrymandering and the way that that's often been held, often been used to sort of hold the influence of Latino and Hispanic voters at, at bay. But then there's also, you know, when you look at the electorate the Latino population skews younger and yet the electorate skews older, right? People who are older are, are among the most dedicated voters, or they're at least the people who more regularly turn out. And in Texas, that is a predominantly white group. And so there are these sort of fluctuations in these populations. Um, you know, I, the, this, this figure about Texas children almost being a majority Hispanic you know, sure, that's all 17 year olds, but it's also three year olds, you know, the, the change there is, is going to be gradual. But I think in, in one of the other forces that we do have to acknowledge is, is the income and poverty component of this, right? The, the idea that a Hispanic person in Texas is twice as likely as a white person to live below the poverty level. You know, the, when you think about the factors that have to come into play for someone to feel empowered enough to think that their vote can make a difference. You know, the the place that they are starting from in terms of their economics, in terms of their livelihoods is not nothing. Then, but then, you know, 
that comes crashing into these broader forces that are often used to keep people from using their power, like political Jeremy. So all, I mean, all of these things exist together. And I, I don't think it's just one thing, right? And, and as the state continues to diversify, I think what will be really interesting is to hopefully be able to somehow get our arms around the diversity that will exist within the Hispanic and Latino community, because the experience of a Hispanic person growing up on the border is very different than the experience of a Hispanic person growing up in Houston or in the suburbs of the Dallas area. So, I mean, I think that we are going to have to start thinking about population change and growth in in much broader ways um, than I think we have in the past. And, and that probably goes for elected officials and political candidates as well. Yeah, and we see that already to a certain extent, and it does become like more of a regionalism more than actually like Hispanics, but we can all say it together. Are you ready? One, two, three. Hispanics are not a monolith. <laughs> yeah, and of course, that is true of all populations. We don't expect, you know, young white people who live in uh, within the Austin city limits to vote as the same the same way as, you know, 75-year-old white people who live in the panhandle. That's um, That's just kind of obvious and, and shouldn't surprise anyone in any way. You know, I think, though, it's important to um, just, I think, also keep in mind the extent to which, I, as I already said before, politics lags behind the culture. I remember this is this feels a little bit uh, off the side, but I promise I'll get back to it here, is that I, I really remember sitting and watching the Super Bowl in 2017 um, you know, a few months after Donald Trump was elected president. And, you know, the Super Bowl is, of course, the most watched television event in the country. Um, there are major corporations spending millions of dollars to buy advertisements on that. And then there was this whole big conversation during that Super Bowl about how kind of, you know, quote unquote, woke the commercials were and how kind of liberal leaning the commercials were. And it's this question of how do we go from an electorate that elect a country that elects Donald Trump in November to, you know, late January or early February, whenever that was having all these commercials and all these corporations that, you know, as much as they may profess to really care about social issues, what they care about most is profit and making money. And how are they making this economic decision to be pushing this kind of message in the country that just, you know, had this election? And of course, the answer to that is that the people that advertisers and corporations are trying to sell to are people from, you know, the ages 18 to 45. And the people that are turning out to vote in the most, um, you know, uh, strongest numbers are often that age group that's older, you know, the 45 to 60 or 70 or, or everything like that. And, and in that way, you know, what we see is a lot of times the, 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 the electorate, the votes, the elections are reflections of a little bit like older populations than what are driving other areas in the culture and everything like that. And I think there's probably some of that in Texas too. And what we have seen is, from you know the first time governor abbott was elected governor um by 20 points you know it looks like there's a pretty good chance that he might win again this year but he's not going to win by 20 points and and i think some of that like shrinking of the margin is reflective of the change that may just not be happening as quickly as the population numbers are changing in the state as well so i mean you know oh, go ahead james 
No, no, I, I think that was a perfectly well-made point. I, I was a little bit worried when you started with the 2017 Super Bowl, how we were going to get there, but I followed it. I followed it, the it was impressive, <laughs> impressive work. Exactly. <laughs> I will, I will just add the, the last thing I'll say on this is that I, I think that this, these ideas of the conventional wisdom that often drives our politics will more and more come into question and I think that the this idea of regionalism that James uh, pointed to is an important one, because when you think about it, there are more Hispanic or Latino Texans living in places like Hayes County in central Texas than they are in some of these border counties that have sort of come to the center of attention for a lot of Republican candidates. And, you know, it, it's just these these sort of set conventional wisdom points that people may have followed before are are going are, you know they're starting to buckle in a lot of ways and and i think that we will we will be working to wrap our arms around what that means but i i don't know the extent to which those in power will do that so i guess we'll wait and see yeah and of course i mean it is true that even within those regions and communities there's diversity of thought and approach too there are liberals in in the valley and, and along the border and there are conservatives in in hayes county as well you know um, so that can all kind of, uh, but you know, those, those numbers, those broad numbers where the state is growing and, and, and what the people, uh, who represent that growth look like and what their, you know, uh, financial situation and everything like that does matter on kind of a macro level as things go forward. All right, let's pause for a minute and hear from our sponsors. Raptor Technologies. More than 6,700 Texas schools and 35,000 schools across the U.S. utilize Raptor to screen visitors, track volunteers, report on safety drills, respond to emergencies, and reunite families. Find out more at raptortech.com. And CityCast Houston is the daily podcast with a local conversation you don't want to miss. Hosted by longtime Houstonian Lisa Gray. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. So James, we have brought up the border a couple of times in this conversation, and you have just spent some time down in that region kind of trying to get a sense of what's happening politically there, um, including in the, the town of Sanderson, um, the city of Sanderson. Tell us a little bit about Dale Lynn Carruthers and, you know, what what you learned about her and, and the community that she lives in and what's happening politically there. Yeah. Well, first off, I, before we start this conversation, I want to invite all, all the listeners to just breathe a little bit, take a chill pill, relax, <laughs> <laughs> calm down, not send me any mean tweets. We're going to discuss this in nuance. Uh, and if you do have concerns with the story, I invite you as always to, email Matthew Watkins. <laughs> but so the, the story behind Judge Carruthers is she is the county judge right now in in Terrell County. It's this community in West Texas um, that has less than a thousand people. And it's been traditionally and it's right up against the border. Um, um, and it's traditionally been a Democratic area. Um, their entire county government has basically been run by governors and judge Carruthers herself had, you know, grown up there and then came back after spending some time in other places in Texas, she came back and wanted to join county government and ran as she would on the democratic ticket as everybody else had run. Uh, but then when she was appointed county judge in 2021, 
um, when the migrant crisis really started picking up um, after the Biden administration came in, she started seeing uh, the numbers of migrants coming through increasing um, and the impact on her community also increasing. Um, they had always had, they're on the border, so they'd always had people crossing through ranches, people crossing through sort of the rugged terrain that's out there. Um, but it had begun to grow to groups of like 20, 30, 40. And so um, it becomes uh, more of an issue when the, the groups are that big. There was also people that were cutting ranches' water lines. And you can understand that people want to get a drink in this very semi-arid uh, uh climate um but it's harmful for the ranchers because they're trying to get uh water to the rest of their ranch to their livestock um and it drives up their bills because if you don't notice it that water is going to keep running you know um and also like cutting up high fences stuff like that stuff that we hear in border regions um and she sort of was asking for help uh needed help in her community to sort of try to um curb the flow of uh, migrants through the area um, and didn't see any help coming from the National Democrats, from the Biden administration. Uh, of course, the group that was helping her was the Republican Party here in Texas. A uh, big part of that was Governor Abbott and his Operation Lone Star. Um, and so at some point last year, she decided that she was done with the Democratic Party. She was now going to run as a Republican. Um, and she's just one uh, among you know uh, uh, numerous uh, local elected officials who are shifting their political affiliation. Um, other, other, other places where uh, local elected officials have shifted their uh, political allegiance are places like uh, Uvalde and Kidney County, uh, you know, which we hear a lot um, in terms of Operation Lone Star. Uh, also, formerly Democratic, strong Democratic areas where we're, you're starting to see a shift there to the Republican Party at the local levels. And really, all politics is still local, I believe. You know, those things start bubbling up to the surface. Um, so that has been, I mean, the border security and immigration has been a driving force for people changing their minds about where their political allegiances are. Like, I don't think that can be, like, debated. Like, clearly, that is a thing that is happening. I think the issue is, like, how many people are actually changing their minds? And is it a significant enough amount of people to say, hey, we're going to, like the Republicans are challenging in, in uh, South Texas, three congressional districts. Is it enough people to change those minds? Right now, looking at the numbers, I mean, I don't think it is. But is it something for people to think about? Is it something for people to, to people like us to write a story about it certainly is because it is like a, a an issue that is very like near and dear to people i mean this is happening in their backyards um and it's unavoidable for them to like think about this because it's happening right there to them so that's sort of the story behind judge carruthers um and it was the story that we heard over and over again from voters uh, that we talked to, not just in Terrell County, but also in Eagle Pass, where we also were, Eagle Pass, also a very Democratic area where Republicans are trying to make inroads. Yeah, you know, I think um, there is a really interesting question about how sustainable this is. And, 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 and what was it that was, you know, were, what was changing people's minds? What was driving people out to the polls and everything? You know, this, of course, really grabbed a lot of people's attention in 2020 when uh, uh, President uh, Trump did, you know, uh, surprisingly strong 
surprisingly well in, in certain border counties that were traditionally Democrats. You know, one that comes to mind is Zapata County, right, um, which he won. Um, uh, and then that was a county that uh, um, a lot of, um, uh, you know, Democrats were surprised to see Trump at the top win. It is also true that if you scroll down into like other races in that, so Donald Trump won, won Zapata County 52.5% to 47%. But down ballot, the Democrats still held on, right? Um, and, uh, you know, MJ Hagar got 54% of the vote compared to John Cornyn. She won by more than 10%, 10 percentage points, excuse me, compared to in a county that Donald Trump won, which was extremely surprising. And so now we're going into this um, midterm election where Donald Trump is not on the ballot. And I think it will be really interesting to see how those kind of trends continue if they do continue or whether they things kind of tick back in the other direction because one of the reasons that donald trump won zapata county for instance i know i'm just talking about one county here um but mj hager won um in, in the senate race was because there was a not insignificant number of voters who showed up voted donald trump and then did not vote in a single other race down the ballot you know and and how much that is driving things i think is really interesting to see and how much right. that effect will show up in the race where not only is Donald Trump not, you know, there, he, he's not on the ballot at all. He's not in office anymore. So Yeah. And that was one thing that I, it was also kind of unavoidable. A lot of this um, increase in Republican votes has been driven by like Donald Trump and his appeal on border security and on immigration. Um, and so it is, it, it is kind of hard to tell whether this is like a sustainable effort, like you're talking about, or if it's just kind of a one-off where, people were interested in what Donald Trump had to offer. Mm -hmm. um, and then also whether people said, okay, well, we tried that. We didn't necessarily like it. So maybe we'll stick with the Democrats here. Um, so that is interesting. The other thing that's sort of interesting to me is that, you know, there, there have been increases in a lot of these places in terms of how much of the share of Republican of the, of the overall vote is Republican, but these are smaller counties, you know, so it is easier to sort of yeah. proclaim like a hundred percent or 200 or 300%. Um, increase like for example in, in in maverick county where eagle passes the republican party is really excited there the local republican party which started up around 2016 started getting traction around 2016 when trump happened um you know they, they claim this like major increase uh but that if you look at primaries which is an imperfect way to 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 look at voter participation i i realize but if you look at you know how many people they have participating in, i think they have like 79 people um in a city uh, or at least the eagle pass i think or maverick county i think it's like thirty thousand people uh 79 people were voting or yeah in the 2014 gop primary um and they claim these like big massive increases um but you know this year's primary they had like 600 people um so it really sort of puts it into context i think it's also about like how vocal and how loud you are i think it goes back to like the messaging it is easy to like package like republican messages um, and not that they're not real. I mean, border security is an issue, as we've talked about, but it is easier to package that than it is to package like democratic messages like, you know, healthcare, um, abortion rights, uh, you know, funding for public schools. But I also want to point out that like we talked to Democrats there and people who remain Democrats, and they're also concerned about immigration security. They want a more humane approach to it. 
but they also have things that are priorities like healthcare uh, and like a gun um, uh, gun control or gun safety measures. Like they and they are like as vocal on those issues as the new Republicans or converted Republicans are about their issues. Um, so again, going back to like Hispanics are not a monolith thing. Like there are people who are still with the Democratic Party. It still is, I think, the dominant the dominant party in a lot of these border areas. But it was an interesting and like noteworthy thing to see how impactful this messaging on border security and the real, I mean, crisis that there is on the border has had on people's political allegiance. Can I can I add one thing? Well, actually, two things. One is just a sort of aside that I am very, very curious how Republicans continue to think about their decision to eliminate straight ticket voting, particularly mm. when you think about these sort mm. of down ballot races in places where they are hoping to be much more competitive and, and maybe could have benefited from from that in some ways. Um, but but the, the the thing I actually wanted to say is that I, you know, in terms of the messaging, I do think the way in which separate from the individual experiences of these ranchers and sort of what they are seeing on the ground, I, I do think that Republicans have been very effective in kind of controlling a lot of this narrative because, yeah. you know, when you think about the way they talk about the individuals that are being bused to place to other places in the country right now, you know, we've seen Governor Greg Abbott's office and other Republicans describe these individuals as illegal immigrants and, you know, sort of separate from the decision to call an individual illegal the it's not necessarily accurate right like these are folks in many cases who are actually asylum seekers who the government has processed and has allowed to stay in the country while their cases are pending seeking asylum by the way is something that is legal but that those sort of details are just like completely get lost in all of this you know we we were coming off of years of the remain in mexico policy in which asylum seekers were were forced to stay in Mexico instead of entering the U.S., which then pushed some of them into crossing the border outside of these ports of entry, which, and they are now being sort of lumped together with individuals who are not asylum seekers who may also be trying to enter the country in unauthorized ways. So I think that just in this way there, we've just like lost all sorts of nuance. And I think the Republicans have been very, very effective in their messaging and controlling this narrative to the extent that, you know, I wonder if even liberal voters, even people who think differently about what policy should be on the border or think differently about people entering the country, whether they're seeking asylum or not, whether even they, would be able to tell you that some of these individuals on these buses are actually asylum seekers. So, I mean, I think you can't sort of understate the the importance of that narrative and, and how ultimately for a lot of folks, that's that's sort of what lands when they're yeah, making think, some of these decisions. I think, I mean, I think you're putting it kindly by saying illegal immigrants. I think, you know, some of the messaging has said, said far worse things um, about about these people who, who are trying to, um, you know, migrate here and seek asylum, uh, most of them. Um, but I think that also goes to the sustainability question, right? I mean, there is a certain population that gets um, amped up about this issue, right? And they get amped up when you talk about it in the ways that we're discussing that is meant to get them riled up about it, right? But, you know, I think there is a limited, I think there is a limited number of the electorate who is is drawn to that. I mean, I think most people realize that it's a problem 
want to figure out a solution, but maybe are turned off by that kind of language. I think most people are in that. Um, and so to the sustainability question of like, well, if you keep talking about things like calling these people invaders, um, calling them, I think, far worse names than illegal immigrants, um, that also can backfire in future cycles. I mean, it's working for them right now to a limited extent, but can that come back and bite them? And we've, I mean, we've had Republicans acknowledge that that can bite them, you know, and some of the people who have won, <laughs> Uh, Republicans who have won in South Texas, like uh, Mayor Villalobos, right, uh, in, in McAllen, uh, he is not that kind of Republican. Um, he's more of a sort of just business minded, not such a flamethrower kind of person um, who was able to to win a local elected office. So I, I think it's hard to draw something from like what happens in November, but I will be looking out for that. If that sort of rhetoric that Republicans are currently using, which gets people riled up um, and maybe gets them some support, but is that enough support to get them over the hump and get them elected? And will that at some point eventually come back and backfire on them if the Democrats can figure out the messaging on border security uh, and offer something that that is more tangible and is more effective? Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that was the point of the story. That's why I was telling sort of people jokingly saying like, everybody calm down. But like the, the, the point of the story is like, hey, this is an issue that is like riling people up. So people have to figure out like, what do they want? Do they want the big uh, bombacious, you know, talk about, you know, people are invading us or do they want actual solutions? And, you know, for Democrats, I think it offers a uh, an opportunity to figure out the messaging there on that issue um, and see if they can figure out a, a better option. But right now it seems to be working for Republicans, uh, at least to a limited extent. Yeah, you know, even issues like the Abbott's busing policy, which um, obviously is getting a lot of news right now, and uh, I think was noticed uh, by people, again, going back to this UT Texas Tribune poll was, you know, um, uh, popular among voters in Texas, but when you break down by race, it's extremely popular among white voters and among black voters, Hispanic voters, Asian voters, it's far less popular, you know, because I think that there is a certain amount of like kind of, um, you know, dehumanization of the people who are being bused to places as like it's somehow some kind of punishment to yeah. these county, to these other regions to be sending migrants on buses to to their area, you know, that, that may not play as well. Yeah, the optics yeah. are bad on multiple levels. Uh, obviously, different, different groups of people have experienced busing in that way in different ways, and most of them are not in positive ways. Yeah. James, how much... I mean, we, we've talked a lot about border security and border policies um, as in as how as to this pertains to, you know, the politics around the border. You know, I mean, one experience I had during a recent visit to Brownsville was a lot of people telling me, stop writing about us only as it pertains to border policy, that like we care a lot about here about housing prices here and healthcare here. And like, you know, it's it's too reductive to to focus is that on that as the, the only issue here. I mean, how quickly was this brought up to the people you were talking to here? Was it, was it at the front of the minds of, of the voters you were? You were yeah. Like, like, I mean, among Democrats, healthcare was like a, a, a top 
issue um, because like their parents are older and they want like better uh, healthcare for their parents. They want better healthcare for themselves. Um, they don't like that healthcare for the most part in this country is employer based. Um, they talked about that. It is a top issue. Um, I think, you know, I register that point. And another one that I think is huge um, for this election cycle is nearly everybody I talked to uh, who was voting for Democrats was talking about Uvalde and the school shooting. And particularly if you're from South Texas, particularly if you're from a region that is like majority Latino, that I think hit you in a different way because it's little boys and girls um, and teachers that look like you. And if you are from, you know, just broad brush here, but if you are from a Latino uh, background. We were talking about how, you know, a majority or a lot of folks who are from Hispanic households are um, live in uh, impoverished areas or um, are on the lower side of the income bracket. You know, a lot of our friends and families are school teachers or work in schools as assistants or in the office. And so I think it does hit close to home. I mean, everybody talked about it. They talked about how they have sisters and friends who are teachers. They talked about how they had previously been teachers. They talked about these little boys and girls. Um, and so I think that it, I mean, there clearly are other issues that are um, animating people. And I think it's a note well taken. I mean, I think we should write about folks uh, just like we do in any other way um, uh, with any other group of people that, you know, we should write about other issues. This one was just a particularly interesting political angle. For sure. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you to Alexa and James. Thank you to our producer, Justin. And thank you to our sponsors, Arnold Ventures, Curative, Raptor Technologies, and CityCast Houston. We'll talk to you all next week. Time is almost up to join us at TribFest, happening September 22nd through the 24th in downtown Austin. Sit front row to hear from big-name speakers, including Chris Bosch, Pete Buttigieg, Liz Cheney, Annette Gordon-Reed, and many others. Tickets are selling fast. Buy yours now at tribfest.org.